you're about to meet the most interesting man in Columbus. What a tease, huh? You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is the Chuck Williams Show. Welcome to the Chuck Williams Show. I'm Chuck Williams, reporter here at WRBL News 3, and this is my podcast. Our guest today, I have oversold him heavily in the introduction, <laughs> uh, is uh, is a Columbus neurosurgeon, Dr. Mike Gorham. Mike, welcome. Um, so are you the most interesting guy in Columbus? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> but you're a brain surgeon, you're a sea pilot, you're a skier, you do a lot of things, but you know, you really are one of your specialty neurosurgery in this town. I mean, there aren't many of y'all that do that here, right? No, there aren't. There aren't enough of us in this community, and there aren't enough of us in this country. How many are there in Columbus? Three, and they're all three in your practice, right? Yes. yes. Uh, what is your practice? Uh, Southeastern Brain and Spine Surgery. So we do pretty much all the cranial surgery in the region and. Uh, a, a fair amount of spine disease. Uh, also, we do all the spine trauma, all the cancer reconstruction for the region. So um, we're we're pretty busy. And, and obviously, and COVID has cha- has definitely added to that. Um, disclaimer uh, right off the bat: Mike and our friends, we've known each other for a long time, and I suggest everybody go get a uh, brain surgeon as a friend because it will show you how inadequate you are when you start conversations, and hopefully we're not about to see that. But, uh, but Mike, how does one become a brain surgeon? Well, you know, I think there are a, a few different avenues, and I'm not sure I'm smart enough to be one if I started today. But uh, 30-something years ago, I started college in uh, Birmingham, what school? Birmingham Southern, which is a small liberal arts school in the West End town. Twelve hundred students, a little up bit on the hill. Yeah, it's a little bit smaller than my high school, and I grew up in Arab, which is a pretty small town. Arab, Alabama. Correct. So, you know, and, and I'll be absolutely honest with you. When I started college, I didn't realize you actually went to medical school to be. I mean, I I didn't know how that worked. So I was good at chemistry and stuff, and I kind of fell into the science line of things and, and kind of fell in the line of people that were in pre-med. And I well, this sounds kind of good. I'll try this. Uh, and, and I wound up sort of going down that road. And then when I was in college, I worked at Baptist Medical Center Princeton as a phlebotomist. I'd get up at 5 in the morning and go to work, draw blood, come home, go to class, go back to work in the afternoon. There was a neurosurgeon there named Walter Haynes who was one of – the way neurosurgery worked is in the 60s, 70s, there aren't many now. There were far fewer then. And a handful of the neurosurgeons I met, and Walter Haynes may have been one of them, were neurosurgeons because in World War II or in Korea, somebody said, okay, you're going to be the orthopedic surgeon, you're going to be the neurosurgeon, and you're going to be the belly surgeon. And that's how they got their career. Well, I mean, it's a little more refined than that now. But this man was just an amazing individual to see and I remember the specific case where I thought well this is what I want to be and and I was drawing blood from a girl who was probably 30 something years old in the emergency room and she'd come in with a terrible headache and uh turned out she had an aneurysm so I see her in the throes of that and this was in the beginning days of cat scans and stuff so it was it was a while back uh the next day I go to the intensive care unit to draw blood and she's got this bandage on her head where she's had a craniotomy had her aneurysm 
flipped, and I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. So I go, you know, go to medical school, kind of fall in line with the neurosurgeon, find the next mentor, who uh, at that time was a guy named Garber Galbraith, who, again, was one of the first neurosurgeons trained at the, I think, the Montreal Neurologic Institute. And he just made it so interesting. And then I had a little bit of an aptitude for nervous system anatomy and pathology, so it kind of worked. And then in training, you pick up other mentors. There was a a neurosurgeon in Birmingham named Richard Morowitz and a guy named Wink Fisher who were probably among the most talented neurosurgeons I'd ever met, and I wanted to be like them in my training. And then there you go. What does a neurosurgeon do? I mean, when you think of it, you think of the brain, but it's it's – Brain and spine. 80% of what neurosurgeons do is spine disease. So that's, you know, things as relatively straightforward as ruptured discs. Uh, There are tumors that occur in the spine. There are uh, other types of pathology, blood vessel malformations and stuff that occur in the spine. All the broken backs and broken necks in Columbus, for all practical purposes, we do. And most most of the spine trauma around the country is done by neurosurgeons. Uh, And we do uh, intracranial surgery. tumors and vascular disease. In Columbus, we used to do a lot of aneurysms. That particular disease subset has kind of evolved technologically to the point where most people don't have operations now, and it's become a little more of a destination treatment. So most people with aneurysms wind up having something called a coil done, and really that's done in Atlanta, uh, MCG, places like that. So it's a little more sophisticated than we have evolved to treating here. So... When you are working on the brain, and you you literally will be working on the brain inside somebody's head, what is that like? I mean, that to me, I mean to a, to a layman, I can't put my head around that. Well, what's it like being a reporter? I mean, nothing I mean, like how that. How long have you been a reporter? No, it, it is. It's like okay, so you know, this is something I've done since I was, you know, been involved in since I was twenty five, twenty six years old. Um, you know, it's like, it's like everything you do, you learn the fundamentals of it and then you repeat the fundamentals for 30 something years. You become very familiar with the pathology. You become very familiar with the traps, you know, where you can get in trouble and you try to stay out of it. So you, you, you took your path to Columbus through the U S air force, right? Correct. Uh, so you come out of med school, and you how'd you end up? How'd you end up in, in the so, Air Force? So I had a actually I started college on something called a one P scholarship. So I was in an Air Force ROTC scholarship in a pilot slot, and I was going to go to pilot training, and decided to go to medical school instead. Uh, and then so I had an obligation because of that scholarship. I did my residency in Birmingham, and then after my residency, we were in San Antonio for five years. And then my wife and I were both from the southeast, and or both from North Alabama, different towns, but we wanted to be close. And then, you know, we looked around at places that we might want to be and tried to dovetail that with places that actually needed a neurosurgeon. So, you know, your first impulse is, oh, we can move to Birmingham, Nashville, Atlanta, which would have been, you know, cities are fun, but, you know, you can't swing a dead cat in Atlanta without hitting a neurosurgeon. And if you look at Columbus – you know, there, there was a, an obvious overwhelming need, and it kind of fit what we wanted for our family and raising our children, so it worked out. Did you know much about Columbus before you moved here? What year did you come? Uh, I did came y'all in, come? Uh, you and Tim? Uh, 97. So um, 
Uh, not really. I, I honestly can't tell you that I even remembered there was a Columbus when I was getting calls from recruiters. And I looked on the map and saw it was close to Auburn, and I had friends in medical school from Phoenix City, so I knew the general region. But I, I, I didn't know anything about it at all. Now that you're 29, 20-something, 20 20 yeah, yeah. 20 I mean, not a mathematician. Now that you're 20-something years into Columbus, good decision? Good decision. The, uh, the thing that, uh, that brought us here was really my wife saying that community has a lot of potential. So you, she, she kind of had that sense of, of where things were going. So you walked in right in the aftermath, the wake of the Olympics. Yeah. How have you seen Columbus change in your time here? Well, I mean, you and I both live downtown now. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, we wouldn't have 25 years ago. No. Uh, you know, I remember the – I guess it was uh, – Maybe I don't remember the organization. Maybe it was Riverkeeper. Somebody had a had a reception on the bridge. It's now the Frank Martin Bridge. Uh, before they took the dams out, um, and then you know nine eleven came along, and the Corps, the Corps of Engineers, all that kind of got slowed down a little bit. But you remember when all that started, and the potential for that, and the idea that the Eagle Phoenix Mill may be a really cool place to live one day. And then since our kids left town, we do live there. But but you saw all do that. Do you like living on the river? Absolutely. I, will, I love it. It's perfect. It's perfect for where we are in our life. So we've got, you know, our children are gone. My son lives in Missoula, Montana. My daughter lives in New York City. Um, we've got a dog. We travel when we can. Uh, Your and dog. It's, it's just You're, comfortable. That's a big old dog, too. It's a, you know, she's, she's learned. <laughs> We're all rent. Uh I want to get into the meat. I'll talk about Columbus. I mean, so you're a downtown guy. You like the downtown restaurants. Yeah. You like yeah. I mean, you walk to things. You just you enjoy a lifestyle that's very urban for a two hundred thousand person town, right? Yeah. And, and it's it's comfortable and it's easy. I'm five minutes from the office. It's 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 a good spot for us. Do you um you're not affiliated with either one of the hospitals, but your practice is independent, right? Correct. Um, two years ago, everybody's world changed when COVID came in here. How's your world changed? Well, you know, it, it clearly is a different universe than we walked into. And I think that's, you know, you talk to friends around the country, it's everywhere. Um, but, you know, as the waves have gone through and we've sort of learned how to adapt with them to them, uh, it's different. But you know, when it started, you know, we were basically unemployed for six weeks and doing only emergency call. Well, you know, a lot of our emergency Cause, calls. Because your types of surgeries got stopped, right? Right. We had no intensive care unit beds. And, and you know, ideally if somebody came in with a, you know, a life-threatening problem that needed intensive care unit bed, yeah, we could take care of that. But if you were at a hospital in you know, Americas or somewhere out of the community, didn't show up in our emergency room, where normally we would have said, okay, send them to our hospital, we couldn't do that. And no hospital could do that. So there was a period of time we were getting calls from Meridian, Mississippi, trying to find hospital beds for patients that had you know, blood clots in their brain that needed surgery. And it was very you know, it's dramatic and it's a little bit frustrating. 
but then as the as the waves kind of came and went, we, you know, as as a collective community and and as a various hospital administrations kind of figured out how to deal with it. Now through the big waves, we've stopped doing elective surgeries in spurts, and then we did we would stop doing elective surgeries that would require hospital beds. Um, this last wave, we have canceled cases that we would like to have done semi-urgently, so brain tumors and things like that, that have been pushed down the road a handful of weeks in anticipation of the wave passing. Which it's doing right now, right? It, it, uh, it is, I think. I mean, it seems like things are getting a little bit better, but if you look at the hospital numbers, if you walk through the emergency room and you know, there's a little sign on the door, uh, there's still a lot of those signs. You obviously are not on the front line of an ER or in the hospital per se with the with the uh, with the on the COVID floors. How do you describe those people who have been dealing with this head on, the nurses, the doctors? Well, you know, those people are all our colleagues and friends and you know, they're very committed professionals uh, and they're very tired. Um, some more than others, you know, we've had a, a critical specialties where the physicians will be infected and all of a sudden you don't have if you only have four doctors that practice x type of medicine and three of them have it then you've got a huge hole uh, for a handful of days while they hopefully recover uh you know the nurses get sick the, the nurses get frustrated the nurses get tired the respiratory therapists get tired uh the hospital is you know Bulging at the seams with uh, with sick people in the ER with uh, you know so it, it can be an ex- it's a very dramatic thing to see. There was a a, a time, um, I think the last big wave that came through when we had so much overflow in the emergency room and overflow into the recovery room where the recovery room was actually functioning as a as an intensive care unit. And the emergency room, people were, you know, waiting in ambulances in the ambulance bay to get into a room, no matter what was wrong with them, shot, stabbed, COVID, heart attack. And we ran out of ambulances, and it, and it looked like a, an odd science fiction movie walking through the hospital. It was, it was overwhelming, because, because when you see these people on ventilators and sick, they look sick. I mean, they look bad. And they were just everywhere. I mean, as somebody who's taken an oath to heal, it had to be a really, really, really difficult situation. Well, it, you know, it's a little bit frustrating. You know, you, you do what you can do. And, and the things that came in that people were obviously going to imminently die from and we could intervene or needed to intervene, you do, and you just kind of figure it out. But, it, you know, the guy that comes in that, you know, is writhing in pain from a ruptured disc and you can't operate on him because there's no spot to put him, what do you tell that guy? And, and, and they know. And, and the other thing that we would see is in the office when we were kind of able to ramp back up to at least seeing patients in the office, people wouldn't come. They'd make their appointment and they'd get scared they wouldn't come. Are we a less healthy place because of that? Uh, we were a less healthy place before. So I think there is a little bit of a disconnect between the public's perception of what makes them healthy and what actually constitutes healthy. Your doctor does not make you healthy. 
the things you eat and the things you do in the gym make you healthy. Or, you know, walking yeah. down the sidewalk. Uh, you know, your doctor or, or your physician and your, uh, your, you know, your surgeon's intervention is to kind of put you back on the path if something goes awry. Um, have people died that would not have died because of this? Sure. I mean, I have no doubt about that. So, you know, if you look at the death, you know, we had 2,500 deaths from COVID in this country yesterday. Yeah. I don't know the number, but it's close to that. Um, what's getting missed in there, and, and I'm sure epidemiologists know the answer to this, but what is the expected death rate from other causes versus the actual death rate from other causes? So say if you expect to have, and, and I'm going to totally make this number up, if you expect to have 100 deaths per a million people from myocardial infarction on any given day, and that's probably a high number, but pick that number. But that number comes in at 150. Well, what explains the other 50? And it's lack of access to care because you know, every hospital bed is full of somebody that's intubated with COVID. And then people are going to say, well, you know, this COVID's milder. Well, the greatest analogy I heard about that was really cool. Uh, you know, the, the Delta strain was a tornado. This is a hurricane. So, you know, the tornado's much more concentrated and makes a nice swath of damage. Well, the hurricane's just really, really big, and it's everywhere. So and the, it runs you know, all the, the way up. Well, no, this wave's going to give us more deaths than Delta did, even though it's probably a, le- a more benign strain of the virus. There's just so many more people getting it. And I think that bears out. You look at the numbers. What does the world look like coming out of COVID? I think that, you know, we'd all like to have the same world we had before because we were kind of used to it. That ain't happening. No, I think you have to I think, you have to think about a handful of things. Uh, you know, we, we all want to be more or less normal, right? We want to go to dinner and not have to worry about, you know, somebody sneezing on us or wearing a mask. And we want to we go out and... and look and feel like normal people. Do I think we will get to that? I I think you can comfortably do that if you're vaccinated and boosted right now, at least until the next strain comes along. And and which strain will be the last strain or the the strain that kind of becomes the, you know, the endemic strain? So, yeah, it's there, but no, it's not. Endemic means the last one, right? No, endemic means that it's just like the flu. Okay. I mean, okay. You know, every you know, people forget. You know, the flu kills people. The flu kills thirty or forty thousand people a year. Now, I don't know what the COVID number is, but we're going to be close to a million. So don't be telling me that this is no worse than the flu. Um, so, you know, do I think we'll get to do those things? Do I think we'll go to baseball games, football games, and people not have to make announcements? And you know, yeah, I think we will. But I think you'll have to be cognizant of the fact that, that there is a fairly severe contagion that might still be around. And, and the thing people, I think this was lost. I mean, I think people realized it at first, or maybe they didn't. Uh, the problem with COVID was not as much the virulence, although it did kill a lot of people. It's the fact that you could have it and transmit it, but not know it for several days before you became symptomatic. That's the evil of this particular virus. And let me let me back up. Uh, 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 yeah, go ahead. Let me back up and make this one qualifier. I'm not a virologist. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a public health specialist. But you know, we all read the same textbook in medical school. And and if you if you talk to virologists and immunologists that 
are concerned with, with novel diseases. The disease that scared them, hypothetically, was the one that would kill you, but you would have it for a week before you know you had it. And I'm going to give you another example of something a little, little less deadly. Uh, so you could spread it to a lot of people before you ever became symptomatic, and that's coronavirus. Now, there's another virus that's in our population now that you know, was a novel virus um, that you can spread asymptomatically that we didn't have to deal with when you and I were in college, and it's HIV. So, you know, people carry HIV for a decade before they become symptomatic and, and can spread it. So those are the scary diseases, and that was why COVID was scary because, you know, if it is virulent enough to, to kill a percentage of people and you can spread it without knowing that you have it, then it is a particularly dangerous problem, and that is the problem with COVID, and that remains the problem with COVID. You... What's the, I mean, and, and I know this may be a hard question, but what's the one thing you've learned through COVID that you didn't know coming in despite all of the years of practicing? Oh, Lord, I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, I think, do you relearn things about virology because it because it's important to what's going on in the world? Have you learned anything about the profession? people you work with, about the... Oh, the, uh, uh, I, I am particularly astonished at the obstinance of the human race at this point. Uh, you know, I think that uh, I, I, this is something that you knew, but it was illustrated. You know, James Webb, you know, Senator from Virginia, right? He was Secretary, Undersecretary of the Navy under Reagan yeah. administration. He's written a couple of books. Um, and those books are basically about how hard-headed people of Scotch-Irish descent are. And... That's everybody in the South. I mean, people in the South think they're something, and, and some of them can prove it, but mostly they're descendants from Scotch-Irish. Uh, and, and, and they'll all say they have Native American blood, and they don't. But <laughs> and we can talk about why that is, too. But, but, you know, you tell them it's daylight, and they'll say, no, it's dark. The and, vaccine. And, and, so, the- and so, you know, when there is such an obvious solution to this problem, and, and they... Roll up your sleeve. People just pivot to the most inane arguments about why they're not going to get it. Well, they're doing two things. One, they're being stubborn, or as my daddy would say, they're cutting off their nose to spite their face, and they're endangering people around them. Do you, being a doctor, being a neurosurgeon, do you ever kind of debate people that may say, I'm not getting the virus, the vaccine, and why do you – well, uh, you know, I think th- there are two ways to come at that. There's the, the pragmatic attitude that I would have, and that is don't play chess with a pigeon. And I've Why? told you this. Why? Because they scratch all around the board, crap everywhere, and then act like they won. So th- the other part of it is, is yeah, I'm the one that told you. So, but, but the other part is, you know, you kind of want to understand what they're coming from, but I think it is only the only thing you can do is encourage them to do what is so obviously the right thing. And if they don't, and they, you know, I, you know I've, I've had colleagues, I've had acquaintances that have said, no, I'm not doing it, and some of them died, some of them got really sick, and it, I mean, everybody knows somebody's died of COVID now, right? Yep. And, and I've known several, so, and, and people in, in abject denial that they even had COVID 
while they're dying of COVID. And, and I'm sorry. You know, that's, that's, that's just, frustrating to you, right? Well, it's it's just it's just silly. I mean, you know, this is this is not hard. We have we have really smart people that have spent their lives trying to figure this out. And yeah, they're you know, sometimes they're not as far ahead of the game as they wish they were, but they're further ahead than you are. And you need to admit that sometimes, right? You don't need to come on, it's like you were, you and I were both there, right? Here, here, Chuck. Here's a sugar cube. Take it so you don't get polio. Absolutely. Did you get polio? No, I didn't either. And we both know people who had it. And we did. We grew up when people had polio. Yes, we did. People, some of our friends' fathers. No, may have had no. Polio. I have friends from. You know, I grew up in the country. We had friends our age that had polio. I want to talk about another aspect of your job real quick. I want to shift gears. Wait, I want to go back. Okay. I want to talk about two books. Okay, go. Because somebody listening might want to read a book. Uh, two books. There's a book by David Quammen called Spillover. He's a science reporter, writes for Scientific American, a lot, a lot of things. Spillover is the name of the book. And it, it's a very nice catalog and, and well-written, very readable discussion of what are called zoonotic infections. That is, infections that normally occur in the animal kingdom in mammals, but are accidental in humans. Okay. And there, there are a number of them, and COVID is not the winner, surprisingly enough. It's not the one that matters the most. Um, and then there's another book by a guy named, I think, Walter Isaacson called Codebreaker about a woman named Jennifer Doudna who won the Nobel Prize. I don't know if she won it in chemistry or medicine, who invented a technology called CRISPR. So this vaccine that we all take is made possible because of CRISPR. So what happened was, uh, you know, we isolate the, the uh, coronavirus, sequence its genome, and, you know, two days later they printed, the, the, they printed the, the vaccine because that technology exists now. now. The delivery system took a little bit of time. But it's a fascinating book, and it, it's kind of where we are in What's science it called? right now. It's called Codebreaker. And it, gives you, and it gives you an idea of kind of what, what it, how these vaccines it, it came should to. give you a tremendous amount of respect for the people that are doing it because you know they're just crazy smart. That's no doubt, no doubt. I do want to shift gears real quick, and what people don't realize because of your profession, neurosurgery, you're impacted directly in a way that few I know are by the crime surge in Columbus right now. Somebody gets shot in, you know, down off Casita Road or gets shot in North Columbus, wherever. There's a pretty good chance you or one of the other two people that do what you do may see them if it's a head injury, right? Yeah, I mean, we see, uh, I I couldn't tell you the number of people shot in the head in, in, you know, crime-related, accidental suicide, and and the, the suicide number typically is about the same as the crime number. Um, na- nationally, it, it, it is almost exactly the same as the crime number. Uh, accidental discharge, uh, hunting, act, you know, things like that. So it's not just what you see in the paper as a crime that we might be involved in, but they're, you can probably double that number. Now, we have other colleagues, the trauma surgeons that have worked at Piedmont forever, uh, who provide a ridiculously valuable service to this community, are involved in every single one of those cases. And, 
you know, you might hear about the, you're hearing about the murders. And I, I saw this yesterday. I think it popped up somewhere in, in my feed. You know, we're at 71 homicides this year, which is. So 70 homicides last year, 63 were murders. Yeah, so whatever the no, big yeah, number. And, and big number. Two or three times what we are used to seeing. Uh, and, and, you know, that's for that's for the, the social and political scientists and the, and the community leaders to help try to figure out. Um. But aside from that number, that's the dead people. The, the percentage of people that don't die, that are shot in the gut, you know, head, neck, legs, arms, uh, is a big number. And, you know, I, I, I don't have an answer to it. I mean, I guess we're, in my world, uh, you know, we show up when they're shot and do what we can. But you're human at the end of the day, and it has to register that many of these are senseless things that shouldn't be happening. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you you know, two things. You you cannot do this if you cannot compartmentalize. So Your I, job. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've seen, I've seen tragedy beyond belief. I, you know, I remember I had a kid, or not a kid, I had a family when I was in Birmingham. I've had... Mass shootings here. I was I had to operate on one of the guys that was shot uh, when the doctor's hospital shooting happened. Uh, but I remember a you know, a guy in Birmingham uh, killed his two children, killed his wife, and shot himself in the head, and did not particularly do an effective job when he shot himself. Well, you know you can't you can't be in that. You've got to be dis- You got to do your job and be distant from that. Do you wish it hadn't happened? And is it a, is it a human tragedy beyond belief? Yeah, but that's an that's an off hours kind of a contemplation that you have. So when you get the phone call, you go straight to the ER to the. Well, yeah, I mean you you know you look see what you need to do, and then you go do it. A surprising you know, and as people know, we got lots of different kinds of bullets now, and some of them do a lot of damage, some of them don't do much damage at all. So, but what, bu- what bullet? Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, you know, there, there are a handful of character fundamentally in ballistics, I think, and, and people out there know more than me about this, but, but, you know, a projectile does damage in one of three ways. One is by the penetration itself. So to stab you in the head with a knife, that's a low-velocity injury, and, yeah. you know, we poke things in people's brains all the time. Maybe we use a more eloquent word than that, but, you know, yeah. what, what happens on Friday the 13th doesn't actually happen when you stick something in somebody's brain. Usually they're fine. Uh, <laughs> I'll take your word for it. You know, they never even know it. Uh, but, but so, you know, the penetration. Then there's the something called blast effect. So if you, if you shoot an empty Coke can, what happens? Nothing. Bullet goes through the can. You shoot a full Coke can, what happens? And that's it awesome. explodes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the second thing. So, you know, the brain is a full Coke can. And, and that is a... That is a uh, that's determined by the velocity of the projectile. So a low-velocity projectile won't impart that much energy into whatever you're shooting it into, so you'll get less damage. So a high-velocity projectile will explode it. Uh, and then the third thing is something called cavitation. So, you know, when you were a kid and you splashed your hand in the bathtub and the water went bloop like that, that's because the water pressure behind your hand is lower than in front of your hand. Well, the same thing happens with a bullet. So the pressure in front of the bullet is very high. So when you operate on somebody's shot anywhere, 
the stuff that you're taking out, the hair and the bone stuff, is not the stuff that was in front of the bullet. It's the stuff that was behind the bullet because of that low-pressure area pulling things in. So fundamentally, that's the way that happens. And most, the most important determinant is the velocity of the projectile. So if you drop a bowling ball on your head from two feet away, yeah, you look stupid. probably doesn't hurt you very much. But if you, if you put a three fifty seven or you know, a .30-06 rifle bullet through somebody's head from 50 yards away, that's a tremendous amount of energy. Now, there are other characteristics of bullets. You know, they fragment, they tumble, things like that. But those are the fundamental things. That's when you say, like, it hits a bone in the arm. And well, and, and, you know, some bullets are designed to do things, like fragment when they enter things. And, and I don't know that much about that kind of stuff. I'm not a big bullet guy. But I want to talk to you a little bit about, um, you know, you and I are both 61 years old. Um, you know, I certainly won't do this forever. Um, you know, What's the average lifespan or average uh, time in seat for a, for a neurosurgeon? Well, I mean, two questions. If you ask your life insurance actuary, neurosurgeons don't live as long as most people. And most neurosurgeons die in practice. Do you plan to do that? No. That's about as far as we'll go with that one? No. Okay. I mean, I like to ski. I like to fish. I like to do a lot of other things and I need to kind of do them while I still can. What do you do to, to unwind? What do you do? Well, you have a high stress job, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, some people would say that. So what do you do when you just need to do something? Well, I have taken to lately and, and again, I wasn't as good at hobbies when I was younger. You know, I haven't, I, I went hunting when I was 16 and probably didn't go again until I went with a friend of mine quail hunting last year and I hit one quail and I'm like you know I need to do more things like this now I had I had started fishing a lot more and I've gotten a, you're a fly fisherman right I do fly fish out west and that's one of the things I've gotten into and I've started doing that you know the whole fly tying thing and stuff like that that's pretty peaceful we hike and do a lot of outdoor stuff when we're out in Montana um, I started flying airplanes when I was in high school my dad had a couple of planes he had the I don't really understand the whole deal, but he, he learned to fly because of the GI Bill, and then he he and a buddy of his bought a couple of airplanes, and they leased it back to a flying school, so that kind of paid for the plane. And I was flying when I was a senior in high school, but then I went to college, and, you know, you have to chase girls, drink beer, that kind of stuff. And that kind of went by the wayside when I figured I was going to medical school. And then when the kids left home, I picked that back up. And uh, it, it's actually you, Are you a licensed fun. pilot? Yeah, I'm a commercial pilot and a seaplane. I got a seaplane pilot rating, too. And it, the only reason I did that was because it was cool. Where's the coolest place you've landed your seaplane? Uh, well, I don't have a seaplane. so well, Have you flown one? Yeah, I, flown, I had the rating, yeah. No, down in, uh, in uh, Winter Haven, Florida, there's a school where you can go do it in the weekends. Pretty, I mean, and it only takes a few hours. I would say the coolest place I've ever landed my airplane is either Cedar Key, Florida, and, and the reason is because that runway is the shortest paved runway in Florida. It's like 2,700 feet, and, and it's tight. And, and airplanes don't like hot, so if it's hot and tight, that's pretty hairy. Uh, but it's beautiful. And then we went down, spent the week, uh, a night with my brother-in-law and sister. Uh, and then I would say the second coolest place or the other really cool place is Red Lodge, Montana. And that's a chore because it's a, it's a pretty long flight. So I, I flew from here to Oklahoma and then landed, and I've done it a handful of times, landed in uh, Laramie, Wyoming, and then spent the night, flew the next morning up to Red Lodge, which is in southern Montana, just south of Billings. 
And uh, it's about a 4,000-foot runway, but it's at 6,000 feet. So the, there's something called density altitude. The, the airplane wing actually doesn't see as much air, so it functionally shortens that runway. And it's also pretty tight. But it's gorgeous, and it was a lot of fun. You love Montana, don't you? Yeah, you know, I, I, I never would have thought, if you just said, okay, name the 50 states that you're most likely to, to go to, Montana may not have even made the list. And I'm not sure why. And, and uh, our son started going there with Kurt Jacobson's son. And I, you know Kurt. Yeah, yeah, I do. And uh, then we just kind of got sucked into it. And now we Most people, when there. they think of Montana these days, they think of uh, Yellowstone, the TV. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are, there are two Montanas. There's, a, there's eastern Montana, which is basically Great Plains, a lot of ranching, cattle, a lot of grassland. Um, and then there's Western Montana, which is what you see on TV. Now, Montana's big, so it, you know, it's one of those artistic licenses they take when they get on a helicopter in Helena and go to Bozeman, and it takes them five minutes. Let me tell you, in a car, that's seven hours. It's a big state. Um, but it's gorgeous out there. It's beautiful, and we do like to fish, and I'm trying to figure that out. I'd like to start hunting out there. I've got a friend that you know, I'm going to talk out. to. What would you hunt Elk. elk and deer. Now they hunt. I mean, they hunt antelope. They they hunt elk. They hunt deer. They hunt. You know, some people trophy hunt goats and stuff. But I, you, I think. To, do I think you ski the, as well? Yeah, I'm a I'm an okay skier. My daughter actually uh, was the best skier in the family until she kind of wandered off to New York, and she uh, doesn't ski that often. And my wife has become a really good skier. And then um, doesn't she also do some work? That involves cross country skiing. Yeah, we we all kind of do that. Yeah. We're not that good at it. I only do it because it makes her laugh. Um, and then my my son is a uh, is an expedition guide for a company called RMI out of uh, out of Washington, and he's kind of gotten into all this backcountry skiing, and and he's doing things that scare us. So that I don't think I, I don't know how you, I don't know how you do it. Uh, we do this thing where we uh, kind of skin up the mountain. So you put these things on the bottom of your skis and you walk up the mountain or you go up the mountain. And, and we go, you know, maybe we'll gain 2,000 feet of elevation and maybe it's three miles and maybe it's less. And they'll throw their skis on their back and hike 20 miles into the wilderness and ski out. And I can barely stand up after two miles on a groomed slope doing that. So, I, you know, they're just in incredible shape, but they're young. A lot of core, a lot of core strength, right? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, you know, and, and you know, I, I think that both of my kids are. You know, I, I don't know where they got their athletic ability. My daughter is a, you know, she's she's understated in her skill. She didn't, doesn't like to draw attention to herself, and she's she's doing the New York Half Marathon here in a couple of weeks. I think we're going to go see that. And she's, they're they're both pretty pretty special children. Uh, Adults, <laughs> I mean, they're, yeah, I mean, they're, they're they're adult children. But you know how that goes. And and you know it's it's kind of cool when your kids kind of grow up and start flying. It's really it, yeah, to it, me that's one of the joys it, that a, I never really yeah. Saw it, it, it's an it's an interesting thing. Our 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 daughter, uh, you know, I could not imagine at the age of seventeen going to New York City and never leaving. That would just freak me out. I mean, the only people in New York, in my mind, were people on Seinfeld. There weren't any real people there. <laughs> and it just it's just sort of inconceivable when you grow up in the – I mean, because you, know, you grew up in Eufaula, right? And I yeah. grew, it, it's, it's like these are not the same place. No, 
Amen. And then our son, I mean, the things he does are things that you see in these Jimmy Chin documentaries, maybe not to that degree, but, I mean, it's like he'll put these pictures up on Instagram or these videos, and they'll be up in the hinterland skiing down between these giant rock columns and stuff, scaring the crap out of me and his mother. I know you and Tammy are both very proud parents. Well, yeah, I think most people are proud parents. Um, we're getting toward the end of this. Uh, anything else you want to throw in here, and then I'm going to throw a curveball at you at the end. Okay, fire away. I okay. got nothing. <laughs> you got nothing, okay. At the end of this, I do what, called, what I call turn the tables. I've been asking you questions for 40, 45 minutes. Throw one at me. All right. What is the press's responsibility when it comes to reporting the truth versus acting like an umpire? And if you need me to explain that question, I will. Do explain it. Okay. I think I know what you're saying. in In our current national dialogue, it seems like we have two teams or two camps. And I'm going to ignore one of the camps completely. The other camp has become so pernicious and bought into so much in terms of lies about the election, uh, you know, out-and-out falsehood, inflaming violence in the Capitol, and, and, a, and a reporter doesn't say Donald Trump's followers stormed the Capitol and tried to overthrow the government. You but know, that's what they did. So why does nobody say that? Well, I mean, and some, it, it's some a, do say that. It is a dangerous situation, and, and why is it not you know, addressed more more frankly? And, know, and, why, and why don't reporters say Donald Trump lies? I mean, they do. I mean, I've heard I've heard that people say this is not proven or some other way of saying it. But you know, the way I see my job as a local news uh, TV reporter was a newspaper is to present the sides of things, to get information accurately, fairly, and in context. That's what I do every single day here. Well, let me, let me ask the question differently. Okay, I'll come at it differently. How do you justify presenting both sides when there's only one side? Well, there are two sides. Even, you know, with the situation you're throwing out, you know, I mean, it's clear there was an insurrection on January the 6th in the Capitol. It's clear, based on what you're seeing, who the people were and where they came from that provided that. I mean, you know, that's a fact. I mean, you can look at it and see it. It's a fact. It's on TV. We've all seen it. But it's being denied. And, and what is but the other, gonna, and, but but what is the other always, side? I mean, you know. But what's the other side? You said there were two sides. What's well, the other side? I mean, there you – I mean, you're going to talk to people who, you know, we become incredibly polarized, Mike. You I know, agree. That, I mean, it's unbelievable. And, you know, everyone's job is different in this polarization. Mine's gotten increasingly more difficult. And, you know, I try to be fair. I try to get it right. I, that's what I work to do every single day is to get an original or enterprise story and to get it accurate and get it right. Sometimes, you know, I hit the nail on the head. Sometimes the nail hits me. Um, but, you know, 
but I do talk to both sides on things. But, you know, sometimes you don't have to do – I mean, sometimes the truth is clear. You can report it yeah, that way. And, and for the record, you don't you have not stated what the other side was because there's not another side. <laughs> okay, and, and I get it, and, and I get where you're coming from. You, you know, you're – in Columbus, you're an anomaly in some ways. You're you're pretty liberal in your thoughts for for a physician in our community. Many of them yeah, I know are know. not as are not as politically of you, your flavor. I think you look on the voter map, and Columbus has been blue a long time. It is. Our city is a blue city. Yeah. There's no question. This is a democratic city. If you look at the way it's voted over the years, mm-hmm. and you live in the heart of it, I knew this was going to be fascinating. Dylan. Uh, Dylan Hansen, our director, he's here every week, and he's the reason we're able to do this. Uh, Mike, you've been a really good guest, a lot of insight, and, you know, you really are one of the smartest people I know. And, you know, you've often joked that I told you one day you ought to be, your parents ought to be very proud of how smart you are, and what was your response? My brother's a rocket scientist. (laughs) <laughs> and that's and that's true. I mean, his brother is they're, a rocket they're really, scientist. They're really proud of him. So. <laughs> Although, yeah, okay. But, uh, but you know, my sister was a was a uh, senior vice president for Tenant Health, and then my other sister ran a charter aviation business. And I think the thing that everyone is most proud of is their children. Absolutely, amen to that. Well, you've been listening to the Chuck Williams Show, and let's go and run this thing out of here now. First thing, you can hear it on uh, Tuesday nights between 7 and 8 on WRBL.com. You can also get it on iHeart, Spotify, and and Apple. Apple. Let's don't forget Apple now. That's not a smart thing to do. And then I'm on social media. You can catch me on Twitter at Chuck Williams, Facebook, Chuck Williams, WRBL, and then on Instagram, Chuck Williams, 0999 been listening to another episode of the chuck williams show our guest has been dr mike gorm he's a neurosurgeon here in columbus and he's offered a he's offered us a lot to think about a couple of book recommendations thank you for being here mike right thank you